I'm Syra, a psychologist and a human rights advocate. Welcome to the podcast on recovery from coercive control, a podcast that tries to unpack how coercive control impacts mental health, what psychology can teach us about recovery, and how to promote recovery and healing to build a hopeful future. So this episode is what is coercive control? The first step in recovery is understanding what has happened to you and then making sense of what has happened to you and then accept that this has actually happened. Now, how much time this takes varies from person to person, but survivors tell me that making sense of what happened to them can sometimes take years. Getting stuck on or thinking about events beyond the five-year mark seem to impact them more. Early after separating, they might repeatedly go over events and images and thoughts, which in psychology we call ruminating, to try and make sense of what happened to them. I think this is an important part of your journey, and it makes sense in the early years after you separate. But there might come a point as you move forward that that rumination starts to have a negative toll on you. So how do you make sense of coercive control? This is where women's organizations and charities specific to domestic violence do very well. Psychological professionals are not trained in this area necessarily, and this means that not all of us are equipped to help survivors understand and make sense of coercive control and what has happened. Finding people who understand coercive control is important because having someone not understand what you have experienced or talking to someone who invalidates you can be re-traumatizing and adds to survivors feeling negatively about themselves. Therefore, find people who can help you make sense of coercive control and how it operates, and this is essential to your recovery. Domestic violence cuts across all economic, cultural, social, and ethnic groups. It is a worldwide issue and concern. It can happen between siblings, parents and children, same-sex couples, within marriages, people who are dating, or even in a work context. I'm going to start by defining what I mean by domestic violence, because what people can consider domestic violence can vary. Understanding is the first key towards recovery, so it's very important that I'm clear about the terms I use and what I'm referring to when I speak about domestic violence and coercive control. People have different feelings about terms being used, and this can make things extra confusing. I've heard from many survivors or victims who have told me they don't like the term domestic violence and they prefer domestic abuse because they didn't have physical violence. So that's one thing to keep in mind. I also heard people talk about narcissistic abuse or quote-unquote toxic relationships to describe unhealthy relationship dynamics, and they prefer this over calling it domestic violence. Often these terms are referring to the same relationship dynamics as those that occur within domestic violence, but because of this misconception that domestic violence is physical and the social stigma associated with domestic violence, People may not think, either might not think they are suffering domestic violence or prefer to call it domestic violence and use less loaded less loaded terms such as toxic. 
What I'm not talking about is situational couple violence, and this can sometimes happen when there's tension for a long time and emotions escalate, things can get heated, and there's a one-off incident of physical violence. Somebody gets slapped or pushed or kicked, typically. And I have worked with couples or families where these things can happen, where there is a physical altercation, but not a pattern of controlling behavior. The incident or incidents are definitely not what we want in a relationship, but one person is not trying to gain power and control over someone else. And it is this power and control that is the heart of domestic violence and what I would say is domestic violence. The World Health Organization definition of domestic violence includes any behavior in a relationship where one person engages in coercive control that results in physical, psychological, or sexual harm to another person within a partnership or a significant relationship. So if we think of domestic violence as a wheel, then in the center or the hub is coercive control. And the spokes are the tactics that the perpetrator uses to maintain power and control over the victim. And these spokes are multiple, not just a one-off incident of physical violence. The spokes have the purpose of limiting a person's liberty and choice. The tactics work together to keep the victim under the abuser in the power and control of the abuser. Often, we use the power and control wheel, also called the Duluth wheel, to help victims identify how the tactics work to keep them below the perpetrator. I think it's helpful to think of an example, because often the examples we hear in the media or out in the world are quite extreme. But I'm going to give you an example that I often hear, and one might necessarily not think of as domestic violence or associated with coercive control. And I'm going to start with just one segment of this Duluth wheel, financial abuse. I often hear from women who they're burdened with children and household management, and they tell me how it happened. So they've asked their partner to help but no amount of nagging, yelling, or negotiating would make the partner help. Often, he might simply refuse to participate, ignore her, or verbally attack her or put her down. Yelling, pleading, explaining, nothing would work to have him help with the childcare or the household chores. So in the end, she decides to simply do it all to maintain the household peace, especially when there's children involved. This is also likely better for her mental well-being and her mental health. However, the abuser has successfully chipped away a a very important part of this survivor's life. Due to the monotony and drudgery of daily household management and childcare, she's now less able to work and he was freed from this responsibility. This also potentially isolated her. We can add that to the other segment of the wheel, as a large amount of time was now absorbed in the home and with the children, meaning she had less energy to devote to pursuits outside of the home. Now, if the abuser moved frequently for his job, this also meant she had to start over every time they relocated, 
and she might even lose her professional network. Now, there might be some women who are in this position by choice and have planned this with their partners. So from the outside, we may not think of it as controlling or abusive, unless the survivor told someone about how the arrangement was actually forced on her rather than a choice. It's also very unlikely that anyone outside would see this as unusual. In fact, it's highly valued in some social circles that a parent, usually the mother, is at home caring for the children. She would ascribe to the social ideal as the good mother. However, if we add in that she has to account for her expenditures or has an allowance, if he questions her decisions and repeatedly tells her she is a fool and an idiot and criticizes her household management and child care, the picture becomes quickly even more ugly. One of the tactics I frequently hear is that the abuser comes home and tells the survivor how wonderful other mothers are, or perhaps they have somebody they know in common, and that person is held on a pedestal, so they are constantly compared. People would not necessarily think of these things as tactics, but when all put together, they can be quite a horrible picture. The tactics limit the autonomy and choice of the survivor, and the abuser works towards dictating and controlling every aspect of their life. Now, this isn't something that happens quickly, but they are introduced over time and gradually intensified. They're controlling behaviors designed over time to ensure isolation, facilitate exploiting, ensure dependence, and regulate behaviors. Often, they don't escalate until there's a change in circumstance and the victim has less power or becomes more vulnerable. For example, after they are officially married, once the finances become merged, if the woman becomes pregnant, if the survivor has a health condition and needs support. This is why victims often have difficulty understanding how they got in the situation. Because Also, it means coming to grips with the understanding that they have fallen into a planned and sustained effort to control them. The abuser will chip away at the victim's boundaries slowly over time, until one day they wonder how they accepted this treatment and how they got there. The answer is they didn't expect or see this outcome. Abusers often intersperse conflict with periods of kindness or warmth, and this confuses the victim even more. Slowly, the victim loses their ability to trust their own emotional reactions and their experience and beliefs. Often, it can take years for a person in the situation to recognize something is wrong, and they are anxious and depressed and look inwards to resolve the issue. But nothing works because the issue is external to them, and there is no way to cooperate and have dialogue with somebody who is abusive towards you. Another reason that people often mistake that they are not going through domestic violence is because of the association with physical abuse. In the media and the general public, domestic violence is associated with physical violence, not coercive control. Frequently, I see stereotypes of men from lower social classes who are extremely violent and aggressive. However, there is no typical abuser. Most of the people I work with, the abusers, are actually working professionals with good social standing. The media portrays a cycle of violence, 
where they often come back with apologies and flowers and gifts with a honeymoon period. However, with the people I've worked with, I've never actually heard of anyone having a honeymoon period. But what actually happens is relief and the return to normality. Survivors strive to have no conflict, and the abuser uses conflict and stress to maintain the control over the survivor, and they provide peace only when it suits their agenda. It is the emotional and psychological abuse that facilitates the coercive control that is the real source of pain. The physical violence is just one of the tactics that keeps the survivor in check. All the survivors tell me it is the emotional and psychological elements that are the most damaging, despite many of the horrific in injuries I have sadly learned about. This is why looking at physical violence is misleading, and it and it should, in fact, be coercive control that is what is, it, what is assessed. The tactics are also used by cults and what I would describe as mind games and brainwashing. With the most extreme examples I have heard of is survivors not being able to leave their bedroom and small details of their lives micromanaged, for example, what they eat, when they eat, how often they use the toilet, and their daily routines. Often the people I work with will come to me wondering how they got there and what was wrong with them. The abuser looks for vulnerabilities to exploit, and absolutely everyone has vulnerabilities to exploit. When someone close to you dies, if you're getting older and you want to have children, if you have a critical parent, if you don't have a lot of relationship experience, all of these are potential pressure points to target. It is easier for people to think that something is wrong with the victim than accept that this type of relationship is possible and that can happen to anyone. One of the concerns I had with my psychology training was the lack of understanding about this type of violence. Exposure to coercive control can leave severe emotional and psychological damage depending on how long and when somebody was exposed to it. It is taking something precious, an emotional attachment, and turning it into something ugly. The person who is supposed to protect and love you has an agenda to exploit you and harm you. This is understandably incredibly painful for someone to recognize and then move on from. If you're interested in learning more about coercive control and my experiences in working with survivors and research on recovery, take a look at the Power and Control Wheel and subscribe to this podcast for more material on what recovery looks like. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your journey to understanding what has happened to you and provided some new insights and perhaps hopefully even helped you feel less alone. I would love any feedback, helpful suggestions, or ideas on what you would like to hear more about. So please do get in touch with me at drsyracon at protonmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to hearing from you.